Book Two, Chapter Six of The Black Star Passes by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Arcot lifted the Solarite at once high into the air and started toward the point on the border where the plane had been seen crossing. In a short time, Wade relieved him at the controls while he dressed. They had been flying on in silence for about an hour when suddenly Wade made out in the distance the great bulk of the plane against the dull gray of the clouds a mile or so above them it seemed some monstrous black bat flying there against the sky but down to the sensitive microphone on the side of the solarite came the drone of the hundred mighty propellers as the plane forged swiftly along just how rapidly these giants moved arcot had not appreciated until he attempted to overtake this one it was going over a mile a second now a speed that demanded only that it move its own length in about five-eighths of a second it made this tremendous speed by streamlining and through sheer power the solarite hoovered high above the dark ship at length the roar of the terrific air blast from its propellers below coming up to them as a mighty wave of sound that made their own craft tremble the hundred gigantic propellers roaring below however would distribute their gas perfectly we're going invisible arcot exclaimed look out there was a click as the switch shut and the solarite was as transparent as the air above it arcot drove his ship swiftly above and ahead of the mighty colossus then released the gas there was a low hiss from the power room barely detectable despite the vacuum that shut them off from the roar of the caxorian plane the microphone had long since been disconnected out of the gas vent streamed a cloud of purplish gas becoming faintly visible as it left the influence of the invisibility apparatus but only to those who knew where to look for it the men in that mighty plane could not see it as their machine bore down into a little cloud of gas tensely the terrestrians waited moments the gigantic plane wobbled there was a sudden swerve that ended in a nosedive straight toward venus seven miles below that the ship should crash into the ground below was not at all arkoff's plan he was greatly relieved when it flattened its dive and started to climb its incalculable mass rapidly absorbing its kinetic energy down from its seven mile height it glided controlling itself perfectly as arcot released the last of the four containers of the liquid gas makers putting to sleep the last man on the ship below in a long glide that carried it over many miles the great ship descended it had sunk far and gone smoothly but now there loomed ahead of it a range of low hills it would certainly crash into the rocky cliffs ahead nearer and nearer drew the barrier while arcot and the others watched with rigid attention it might skim over those low hills at that just barely escaping the watchers cringed as head-on at nearly two thousand miles an hour the machine crashed into the rocks arcot had snapped the loudspeaker into the circuit once more and now as they looked at the sudden crash below there thundered up to them mighty waves of sound the great plane had struck about twenty feet from the top of the nearly perpendicular cliff the terrific crash was felt by seismographs in sonar nearly two thousand miles away the mighty armed hull plowed into the rocks like some gigantic meteor the hundreds of thousands of tons crashing the rocky precipice grinding it to powder and shaking the entire hill the cliff seemed about to buckle and crack in moments the plane had been brought to rest but it had plowed through twenty feet of rock for nearly an eighth of a mile 
For an instant it hung motionless, perched perilously in the air, its tail jutting out over the little valley, then slowly, majestically it sank, to strike with a reverberating crash that shattered the heavy armor plate. For another instant the great motors continued turning, the roar of the propellers like some throbbing background to the rending crashes as the titanic wreck came to rest. Suddenly, with a series of roaring explosions, the bank of motors in the left wing blew up with awful force. There was a flash of indescribable brilliance that momentarily blinded the watching terrestrians. Then there came to the microphone such waves of sound as it could not be reproduced. From the rock on which rested the fused mass of metal that they knew had been the wing, rose a great cloud of dust. Still the motors on the other side of the ship continued roaring and the giant propellers turned. As the blast of air blew dust away, the terrestrians stared in unbound amazement. Up from the gaping broken wing lanced a mighty beam of light of such dazzling intensity that Arcot swiftly restored them to visibility that they might shut it out. There was a terrific hissing, crackling roar. The plane seemed to wobble as it lay there, seemingly recoiling from that flaming column. Where it touched the cliff there was an intense incandescence that made the rock glow white-hot, then flowed down in a sluggish rivulet of molten lava. For five minutes longer this terrific spectacle lasted, while Arcot withdrew the solarite to a safer distance. The fifty motors of the remaining wing seemed slowing down now. Then suddenly there was such a crash and towering flash of light as no human being had ever seen before. Up, up into the very clouds it shot its mighty flame, a blazing column of life that seemed to reach out into space. The solarite was hurled back end over end, tumbling, falling. Even the heavy gyroscopes could not hold it for an instant, but quickly the straining motors brought them to rest in air that whirled and whined about them. They were more than twenty miles from the scene of the explosion, but even at that distance they could see the glow of the incandescent rock. Slowly, cautiously, they maneuvered the solarite back to the spot, and looked down on a sea of seething lava. Morey broke the odd silence. Lord, what power that thing carries! No wonder they could support it in the air. But how can they control such power? What titanic forces! Slowly Arcot sent the solarite away into the night, into the kindly darkness once more. His voice when he spoke at last was oddly restrained. I wonder what those forces were. They are greater than any man has ever before seen. An entire hill fused to molten, incandescent rock, not to mention the tons and tons of metal that made up that ship. They are greater than any man has ever before seen. An entire hill fused to molten, incandescent rock, not to mention the tons and tons of metal that made up that ship, and such awful forces as these are to be released on our earth? For an interminable period they sat silent as the panorama of the hills glided by at a slow two hundred miles an hour. Abruptly Arcot exclaimed, We must capture a ship. We'll try again. We'll either destroy or capture it, and either way we're ahead. Aimlessly they continued their leisurely course across a vast plain. There were no great mountains on Venus, for this world had known no such violent upheaval as the making of the moon. The men were lost in thought, each intent on his own ideas. At length Wade stood up and walked slowly back to the power room. Suddenly the men in the control room heard his call. Arcot, quick, 
the microphone, and rise a mile. The solarite gave a violent lurch as it shot vertically aloft at tremendous acceleration. Arcot reached over swiftly and snapped the switch of the microphone. There burst in upon them the familiar roaring drone of a hundred huge propellers. No slightest hum of motor, only the vast whining roar of the mighty props. Another one! They must have been following the first by a few minutes. We'll get this one. Arcot worked swiftly at his switches. Wade, strap yourself in the seat where you are. Don't take time to come up here. They followed the same plan which had worked so well before. Suddenly invisible, the solarite flashed ahead of the great plane. The titanic wave of rushing sound engulfed them, and then again came the little hiss of gas. There were no hills in sight as far as the eye could see. In the dim light it seemed always to filter through those gray clouds they could never see distant level horizon. Several dragging minutes passed before there was any evident effect. The men from Earth were waiting for that great ship to waver, to wobble from its course. Suddenly Arcot gave a cry of surprise. Startled amazement was written all over his face, as his companions turned in wonderment to see that it was partially visible. The solarite, too, had become a misty ghost ship about them. They were becoming visible. Then in an instant it was gone, and they saw that the huge black bulk behind them was wavering, turning. The thunderous roar of the propellers fell into a whistling whine. The ship was losing speed. It dipped and shot down a bit, gained speed, then step by step it glided down, down, down to the surface below. The engines were idling now the plane running more and more slowly. They were near the ground now, and the watchers scarcely breathed. Would this ship too crash? It glided to within a half a mile of the plane, then it dipped once more, and Arcot breathed his relief as it made a perfect landing, the long series of rollers on the base of the gigantic hull absorbing the shock of the landing. There were small streams in the way, a tree or two, but these were obstacles unnoticed by the gargantuan machine. Its mighty propeller still idling slowly, the huge plane rolled to a standstill. Swooping down, the solarite landed beside it, to be lost in the vast shadows of the mighty metal walls. Arcot had left a small radio receiver with Tonlos and Sonar before he started his trip, and had given him directions on how to tune in on the solarite. Now he sent a message to him, telling that the plane had been brought down, and asking that a squadron of planes be sent at once. Wade and Arcot were elected to make the first inspection of the Caxorian plane, and clad in their cooling suits, they stepped from the solarite, each carrying for emergency use a small hand torch, burning atomic hydrogen, capable of melting its way through even the heavy armor of the great plane. They stood beside it, looking up at the gigantic wall of metal that rose sheer beside them hundreds of feet straight up. It seemed impossible that this mighty thing could fly, that it could be propelled through the air. In awed silence they gazed at its vast bulk. Then, like pygmies beside some mighty prehistoric monster, they made their way along its side, seeking a door. Suddenly Wade stopped short and exclaimed, Arcot, this is senseless. We can't do this. This machine is so big that it'll take us a half an hour of steady walking to go around it. We'll have to use the solarite to find an entrance. It was well that they followed Wade's plan, for the only entrance, as they later learned, was from the top. There, on the back of the giant, the solarite landed, its great weight having no slightest effect on the Caxorian craft. They found a trap door leading down inside. 
However, the apparatus for opening it was evidently within the hall, so they had to burn a hole in the door before they could enter. What a sight there was for these men of Earth! The low rumble of the idling engines was barely audible as they descended the long ladder. There was no resemblance whatever to the interior of a flying machine. Rather, it suggested some great powerhouse, where the energies of a half a nation were generated. They entered directly into a vast hall that extended for a quarter of a mile back through the great hall, and completely across the fuselage. To the extreme nose it ran, and throughout there were scattered little globes that gave off an intense white light, illuminating all of the interior. Translucent bullseyes obscured the few windows. All about, among the machines, lay Venerians. Dead they seemed, the illusion intensified by their strange blue complexions. The two terrestrians knew, however, that they could readily be restored to life. The great machines they had been operating were humming softly, almost inaudibly. There were two long rows of them, extending to the end of the great hall. They suggested mighty generators twenty feet high. From their tops projected two feet thick cylinders of solid fused quartz. From these extended other rods of fused quartz, rods that led down through the floor but these were less bulky, scarcely over eight inches thick. The huge, generator-like machines were disc-shaped. From these two, a quartz rod ran down through the floor. The machines on the further row were in some way different. Those in the front half of the row had tubes leading to the floor below, but had no tubes jutting into the ceiling. Instead, there were many slender rods connected with a vast switchboard that covered all of one side of the great room, but everywhere were the great quartz rods suggesting some complicated water system. Most of them were painted black, though the main rods leading from the roof above were as clear as crystal. Arcot and Wade looked at these gigantic machines in hushed awe. They seemed impossibly huge. It was inconceivable that all this was but the power room of an airplane. Without speaking, they descended to the level below, using a quite earthly-appearing escalator. Despite the motionless figures everywhere, they felt no fear of their encountering resistance. They knew the effectiveness of Wade's anesthetic. The hall they entered was evidently the main room of the plane. It was as long as the one above and higher, yet all that vast space was taken by one single titanic coil that stretched from wall to wall. Into it and from it there led two gigantic columns of fused quartz. That these were rods, such as those smaller ones above, was obvious but each was over eight feet thick. Short they were, for they led from one mighty generator such as they'd seen above, but magnified on a scale inconceivable. At the end of it, its driving power, its motor, was a great cylindrical case, into which led a single quartz bar ten inches thick. This bar was alive with pulsing, glowing fires that changed and maneuvered and died out over all its surface and through all its volume. The motor was but five feet in diameter, and a scant seven feet long, yet obviously it was driving the great machine, for there came from it a constant low hum, a deep-pitched song of awful power, and the huge quartz rod that led from the titanic coil cylinder was alive with the same glowing fires that played through the motor rod. From one side of the generator ran two objects that were familiar, copper bus bars, but these were three feet thick. The scores of quartz tubes that came down from the floor above joined, coalesced, and ran down to the great generator and into it. They descended to another level, 
Here were other quartz tubes, but these led down still further, for this floor contained individual sleeping bunks, most of them unoccupied, unready for occupancy, though some were made up. Down another level, again the bunks, the little individual rooms. At last they reached the bottom level, and here the great quartz tubes terminated in a hundred smaller ones, each of these leading into some strange mechanism. There were sighting devices on it, and there were ports that opened in the floor. This was evidently the bombing room. With an occasional hushed word, the terrestrians walked through what seemed to be a vast city of the dead, passing sleeping officers and crewmen by the hundreds. On the third level they came at last to the control room. Here were switchboards, control panels, and dozens of officers sleeping now beside their instrument. A sudden, dull thudding sound spun Arcot and Wade around, nerves taut. They relaxed and exchanged apologetic smiles. An automatic relay had just adjusted some mechanism. They noted one man stationed apart from the rest. He sat at the very bow, protected behind eight-inch coronium plates, in which were set masses of fused quartz that were nearly as strong as the metal itself. These gave him a view in every direction except directly behind him. Obviously, here was the pilot. Returning to the top level, they entered the long passage that led out into the titanic wings. Here, as elsewhere, the ship was brightly lighted. They came to a small room, another bunk room. There were great numbers of these down both sides of the long corridor, and along the two parallel corridors down the wing. In the fourth corridor, near the back edge of the wing, there were bunk rooms on one side, and on the other were bombing posts. As they continued walking down the first corridor, they came to a small room, whence issued the low hum of one of the motors. Entering, they found the crew sleeping and the motor idling. "'Good Lord!' Wade exclaimed. "'Look at that motor, Arcot. No bigger than the trunk of a man's body.' Yet a battery of these sends the ship along at a mile a second. What power! Slowly they proceeded down the long hall. At each of the fifty-engine mountings, they found the same conditions. At the end of the hall there was an escalator that led to one level higher, into the upper wing. Here they found long rows of bombing posts and the corresponding quartz rods. They returned finally to the control room. Here Arcot spent a long time looking over the many instruments, the controls, and the piloting apparatus. Wade, he said at last, I think I can see how this is done. I am going to stop those engines, start them, then accelerate them until the ship rolls a bit. Arcot stepped quickly over to the pilot's seat, lifted the sleeping pilot out, and settled in his place. Now you go over to that board there, that one, and when I ask you to, Please turn on that control. No, no, the one below. Yes. Turn it on, one notch at a time. Wade shook his head dubiously, a one-sided grin on his face. All right, Arcot, just as you say, but when I think of the powers you're playing with, well, a mistake might be unhealthy. I'm going to stop the motors now, Arcot announced quietly. All the time they had been on board, they had been aware of the barely inaudible whine of the motors. Now suddenly it was gone, and the plane was still as death. Arcot's voice sounded unnaturally loud. I did it without blowing the ship up after all. Now we're going to try turning the power on. Suddenly there was a throaty hum. Then quickly it became the low whine. Then, as Arcot turned on the throttle before him, 
he heard the tens of thousands of horsepower spring into life, and suddenly the whine was a low roar. The mighty propellers out there had become a blur. Then with majestic slowness the huge machine moved off across the field. Arkoff shut off the motors and rose with a broad, relieved smile. Easy, he said. They made their way up again through the ship, up through the room of the tremendous cylinder coil, and then into the power room. Now the machines were quiet, for the motors were no longer working. Arcot, you didn't shut off the biggest machine of all down there. How come? I couldn't, Wade. It has no shut-off control. And if it did have, I wouldn't use it. I'll tell you why when we get back to the solarite. At last, they left the mighty machine, walked once more across its broad metal top. Here and there they now saw the ends of those quartz cylinders. Once more they entered the solarite through the airlock and took off the cumbersome insulating suits. As quickly as possible, Arcot outlined to the two who had stayed with the solarite the things they had seen and the layout of the great ship. I think I can understand the secret of all that power, and it's not so different from the solarite at that. It too draws its power from the sun, though in a different way, and it stores it within itself, which the solarite does not try to do. Light, of course, is energy and therefore has mass. It exerts pressure, the impact of its moving units of energy, photons. We have electrons and protons of matter, and photons of light. Now we know that the mass of protons and electrons will attract other protons and electrons, and hold them near, as in a stone or in a solar system. The new idea here is that the photons will attract each other ever more and more powerfully, the closer they get. The Caxorians have developed a method of getting them so close together that they will, for at least a while, hold themselves there, and with a little pressure will stay there indefinitely. In that huge coil and cylinder we found there we saw the main power storage tank. That was full of gaseous light energy held together by its own attraction, plus a little help of the generator. A little help? Wade exclaimed. Quite a little. I'll bet that thing had a million horsepower in its motor. Yes, but I'll bet they have nearly fifty pounds of light condensed there. So why worry about a little thing like a million horsepower? They have plenty more where that comes from. I think they go up above the clouds in some way and collect the sun's energy. Remember that Venus gets twice as much as Earth. They focus it on those tubes on the roof there. And they, like all quartz tubes, conduct the light down and into the condensers where it's first collected. Then it's led to the big condenser downstairs where the final power is added and the condensed light is stored. Quartz conducts light just as copper conducts electricity. Those are bus bars we saw running around there. The bombs we've been meeting recently are, of course, little knots of this light energy thrown out by that projector mechanism we saw, and is very promptly volatilized by the heat of the absorption. Do you remember that column of hissing radiance we saw shooting out of the wrecked plane just before it blew up? That was the motor connection broken and discharging free energy. That would ordinarily have supplied all fifty motors at about full speed. Naturally, when it cut loose it was rather violent. The main generator had been damaged, no doubt, so it stopped working, and the gravitational attraction of the photons wasn't enough without its influence to hold them bound too long. All those floods of energy were released instantaneously, of course. Look, here come the Lenorians now. I want to go back to Sonar and think over this problem. Perhaps we can find something that will release all that energy, though honestly I doubt it. Arcot seemed depressed. 
overawed, perhaps, by the sheer magnitude of the force that lay bound up in the Caxorian ship. It seemed inconceivable that the little solarite could in any way be effective against the incredible machine. The Lenorian planes were landing almost like a flock of birds. On the wings, the fuselage, the ground all about the gigantic ship. Arcot dropped into a chair, gazing moodily into emptiness, his thoughts on the mighty giant, stricken now, but only sleeping. In its vast hulk lay such energies as intelligence had never before controlled. Within it he knew there were locked the powers of the sun itself. What could the solarite do against it? Oh, I almost forgot to mention it, Arcot spoke slowly, dejectedly. In the heat of the attack back there, it went practically unnoticed. Our only weapon beside the gas is useless now. Do you remember how the ship seemed to lose its invisibility for an instant? I learned why when we investigated the ship. Those men are physicists of the highest order. We must realize the terrible forces, both physical and mental, that we are to meet. They've solved the secret of our invisibility, and now they can neutralize it. They began using it a little too late this time, but they had located the radio-produced interference caused by the ship's invisibility apparatus, and they were sending a beam of interfering radio energy at us. We are invisible only by reason of the vibration of the molecules in response to the radio-impressed oscillations. The molecules vibrate in tune, at terrific frequency, and the light can pass perfectly. What will happen, however, if someone locates the source of the radio waves? It'll be simple for them to send out a radio beam and touch our invisible ship with it. The two radio waves impressed on us now will be out of step and the interference will instantly make us visible. We can no longer attack them with our atomic hydrogen blast or with the gas. Both are useless. Unless we get close to them, and we can't come within ten miles of them now, those bombs of theirs are effective at that distance. Again he fell silent, thinking hoping for an idea that would once more give them a chance to combat the Kaxorians. His three companions, equally depressed and without a workable idea, remained silent. Abruptly, Arcot stood up. I'm going to speak with the commander in field here. Then we can start back for Sonor, and maybe we'd better head for home. It looks as though there's little we can do here. Briefly, he spoke to the young Venerian officer and told him what he'd learned about the ship. Perhaps they could fly it to Sonor, or it could be left there undestroyed if he would open a certain control just before he left. Arcot showed him which one. It would drain out the power of the great storage tank, throwing it harmlessly against the clouds above. The Caxorians might destroy the machine if they wanted to. Arcot felt that they would not wish to. They would hope with reason they might capture it. It would be impossible to move that tremendous machine without the power that its tank was intended to hold. End of chapter 6 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com.